Tomich and I are going to discuss six sci-fi action pictures. You should go into the podcast clear-eyed, or at least clear-eared, about a couple of things. We're going to use some coarse language, and we are going to talk spoilers, at least for the six movies, under consideration. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. You can send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. If you're looking for something else to fill your ears with, I can recommend the Terror Table podcast, I can recommend the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, I can recommend Cobwebs, a gothic horror podcast, and I can recommend Welcome to Riverdale. So, uh, those are friends of Rank and Review and good things to put in your ear. Thank you for listening to my show, and let's get into some sci-fi action, people. I got my friend Chris from Australia back on the show. <laughs> it's been a really long time. Actually, I was looking at the Skype reading. Has it really been almost two years since you've been on my show? I guess yeah, you can't argue with that, but uh, it's good to be back, Larry. It's always <laughs> nice to have a chat with you. Well, and, you know, it's really, really strange days. Like, it seems like I'm going to have this whole wing of my podcast now where all of my all of my introductions are about, like, we have to do this over Skype. <laughs> because the world is broken because of these strange days uh i appreciate us you know fighting the pandemic overcoming the time change once again you're talking to me from the future so <laughs> that's right the uh, post-apocalyptic future of australia is actually. there is there a vaccine yet and are <laughs> no, you not yet. are you guys still on fire the last thing i remember <laughs> reading about australia was that the whole place was burning down yeah, it has been a very fun year, hasn't it? But um, luckily here, I'm in the West, uh, and most of, we were pretty okay as far as that all went. Uh, but yeah, the pandemic obviously has affected everyone, and how appropriate for the films we're watching, actually. Oh. We can sort of see the real-world response to these events. It's funny, just a few episodes before this one, I reviewed the miniseries version of The Stand... It was really weird to be watching that movie in the midst of all of this pandemic. Yeah. 
So, I mean, well, I, yeah. I appreciate you doing the episode. I know there's been a lot of obstacles for everyone, but um, here we sit. Uh, we're talking about sci-fi action, I guess. And we have a lot of entries from franchises in this particular episode. A lot of big budget sort of thrill ride, popcorn munching type of experiences. Um, other than like having to make a last minute change and, and putting in Pacific Rim, uh, which actually thematically fits just fine with this list, I think. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't yeah. stick out like a sore thumb. I had been trying to give you a little bit of an Australian sort of undercurrent thing going on with the with these movies, but uh, unfortunately, I think we're only down to one that was actually shot in Australia now. So. Yeah. Oh, that's all right. There's still. Um, everyone says that Australia is the most the hardest place in the world to live with all the deadly animals and all that. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's unfortunate that you have trouble getting your hands on crawl space. I mean, I don't want to oversell it to you. It's certainly not what um, the the you know these final hours was. We the one that we reviewed last time you were on. I thought that was a particularly special movie. It's certainly not on that level, but it's a fairly low budget Australian sci fi action movie, and and you know I think within its own parameters does well. <laughs> so if you yeah. get the chance, check that out. But I guess yeah, if I can find it, I will. Yeah, for rank and review, that's going to have to be a conversation for the other day. But what brought you to this particular list? I know I gave you a bunch to choose from. Is there a particular reason you wanted this one? Or uh, yes, there is, and it's going to give away at least the top one on my list. <laughs> and that's oh, this will give me an excuse to watch Mad Max again. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, that's the most Australian movie that we've got going on here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> There is something, I think, distinctly Aussie about this whole franchise. I don't know that they were all shot in Australia. I know that the original three were. Maybe I'm not sure about this one or not. But This one was filmed in Africa. Yeah. Uh, one of my schoolmates is was one of the Warboy extras on that. Nice. Film. Yeah, I'm not in touch with them or anything, but it was. I found this out and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Well, I mean... And, and yes... In this day and age, that's akin to being a stormtrooper or something. Like, Mad Max was was huge. But basically, yeah, the rest exactly. of these just came with Mad Max. He's a, <laughs> that, the, the, you didn't think too deeply. <laughs> That'll do. Well, for... I, mean, I also like the, the, the genre. I like sort of, you know, action sci-fi. And particularly these are like post-apocalyptic, all of them, more or less. And that's always, you know, that's another interest of mine. And I think that is from watching the original road warrior uh you know when i was young and being really into that that's still in my top five uh you know films of all time and so and then when well we'll get we'll get to mad we'll max talk about mad time. max for sure <laughs> um for me i mean i think that it's a genre that as much as i enjoy that as far as me approaching as a reviewer i will tend to be a little bit harder on especially the really big budget numbers for me, if you if you're spending two hundred, three hundred million dollars in production on this movie, then I, I expect it to wow me. The spectacle should be there because you paid the money. But if you're gonna spend that much money on the movie, then I'm, yeah, I I tend to be a little bit harder on it. Where I'll give like a micro budget movie all the rope it needs. If you're if you're going into this and you're you know you got people who are absolutely professional filmmakers, top of their field, you know. A-list production values, I think that I have a little bit of 
a right to when I put my money down expect a bare minimum. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's a very reasonable attitude, and it is shocking often how these big Hollywood movies will miss the most basic. I mean, the the script, right? You just spend a bit more money on on the script writing and and get the baseline of the film started first. You're spending three hundred million dollars, whatever their budgets are, and they're not getting the very first step. Yeah, correct. It's great that you have this cutting edge special effects, and it's great that you're getting the hottest people in Hollywood to to headline your film. But it's not great that the screenplay is written by twelve different people, right? right? And you're gonna we're gonna bump into this a little bit in these. Not for all of them, but like a lot of the times, it is on a script level. It's like they cared about everything except the script. or you know it, it it'll it'll succeed in in spite of its script you know just the energy momentum or the the raw spectacle of it will will just keep me smiling and eating my popcorn enough that i can let the rest of it go along so i do like the genre but like i've listened back to some of my old sci-fi episodes and i'm like i'm such a dick about sci-fi movies <laughs> like I, I am so much harder on your average sci-fi movie than I am on your average slasher or monster movie, and I don't know I don't know what that says about me, but I think it's a true thing. So, we'll we'll go into this prepared for that. Oh, that sounds sounds like a plan. Is there anything you would like to say by way of introduction before I list off these movies and we get started? No, let's uh, let's go, mate. All right, uh, we're going to talk about Dawn of the Planet. Of the Apes, that's the of the Nouveau Planet of the Apes trilogy starring Andy Serkis. We're going to talk about the Godzilla remake that's uh, actually not too long ago on the podcast. I reviewed its sequel, Godzilla King of the Monsters. We're going to talk about Pacific Rim Uprising, the sequel to Guillermo del Toro's Monster Fight. <laughs> uh, Elysium, the... the follow-up from high-profile director's District... Uh, was it District 13? District 13. District 9. District 9. District 9. District 9, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's, anyway. We're experts. <laughs> yeah, look at us. I'm, I'm really laying bare my, my preparedness here. Uh, we're going to look at a 1990 sci-fi beast called Hardware, and we're going to finish it up with the much aforementioned Mad Max Fury Road. It's great to see you, Chris. Thanks for being here. We both have families. You want to protect yours. I want to protect mine. It's our only chance for peace. Are you aware? No! They are going to turn on you. They're animals! Caesar, you're all. Who was that? A good man like you. Caesar loves humans more than apes. If you threaten his family, he will retaliate. Don't shoot! Don't you move! Should we shoot him? Maybe. Oh, hey, oh, oh. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> oh, you want a drink? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. All right. Easy. Easy. All right. What are you doing? I'm saving the human race. <laughs> Military. They're already on their way. Caesar, you have to go. Go where? This 
my home. I'm sorry, my friend. War has begun. Caesar! Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, this is from director Matt Reeves, who I actually like quite a bit. He did uh, the Cloverfield movie, the first one, found footage, sort of Godzilla-esque cre creature feature. And he did a decent remake of Let the Right One In called Let Me In, which really the only problem with that movie is that it didn't need to be made. The original was, was really, really good. But I like this guy, and uh, I think he makes good movies, and I think this is a good example of him making good movies. Um, I don't know how much of one's appreciation of this movie would be wrapped up on how much you liked Rise. I fell into the position that I liked Rise of the Planet of the Apes, but I really fucking like Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I do think that Rise is necessary background for this movie. I think if you walked into this movie cold, if you didn't have that built-in relationship with the Andy Serkis character and understand why he can control these apes without feeling necessarily like a dictator, uh, without that background, I don't think the movie would work as well as it does. But yeah, I've already given it away. I think the movie's really, really well done. It's a special effects extravaganza, but it's not just the special effects that work in the movie. The character work is amazing, and the acting in it throughout by both the chimps and the actual people is really good, and it goes out of its way to not deliver what you're expecting. It's never black and white. It's always gray which is a fairly complicated feat for a movie that's built to be a popcorn spectacle. The closest thing I can compare it to of a movie that I've reviewed recently on the podcast is actually Captain America Winter Soldier, in which we have a second installment. It's a second installment in a trilogy, so, so to speak, which I think so ups the game of the, of the franchise that I went from being a fan of the Planet of the Apes series to being actively excited about the Planet of the Apes series because of this movie. Am I being hyperbolic? No, I think that's very fair to say. And um, with all these remakes of these classic properties, you always think, oh, how necessary is it? And Rise was was surprisingly good for for what it was you know you think sci-fi remake of like a classic film or film series i suppose but i really only know the, the original planet of the apes <laughs> and and you're like yeah oh this is going to be like that um tim burton one <laughs> like no one like that that was that was rubbish alas yeah surprisingly good and and it's this it's it's it is a um spectacle in terms of the special effects but it's not it's sort of subtle in a way because you forget it's so well done and it's starting with the script uh you know it's so well done and the characters you forget that you're watching literally every single thing all the every single character every single ape character is all completely computer rendered and i think after the first like when you first see them, there's that little uncanny valley, you know, like, oh, that's not quite real. But then 
up to 10 minutes and the start of the movie you're with the apes for the first whole chunk yeah of it and that, i think it's also a really smart decision because that really gets you past the little cg hurdle and into the into the characters right away and yeah this is this is really really they started off right they got a good script at the start and they got what they wanted first and then they used the the cg to enhance that story and to tell it properly well a question could be asked about this trilogy in its entirety like did we need a planet of the apes remake or reimagining or whatever you want to call these and like a lot of people would say well probably not and i think one of the great achievements of it is that it overcomes the inherent absurdity of it like this is really crazy half of this cast is monkeys <laughs> And they are as or more expressive or emotive as our actors. And like you say, they're computer effect largely. I mean, I know they tracked the, the actor's performance, but still, I mean, we're looking at monkeys. We were the, just, and the detail work, the musculature, the hair, the sweat, like the, the steam coming off of their backs as they climb through the trees. Like it's really, really immersive and impressive right away. And you just don't expect it to be as smart as it wants to be. I keep on making allusions to uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe because I guess it's been on my mind lately through the podcast. But everybody goes on and on about how amazing the villain in Black Panther was. I think that Kobo, who is arguably the primary villain of this movie is one of the greatest villains in cinema that I can think of off the top of my head period end of sentence i love how motivated yeah, kobo is how complicated kobo is how he's coming off a place of being tortured for years by humans and not understanding either them or the torture and with his his the birth of his intelligence comes that understanding and with that understanding comes his hatred and yet he they let him be a full bore villain he does shit that crosses the fucking line <laughs> but Kobo's an amazing villain because, like, I'm, I don't agree with what he does, but I understand everything that he does. I understand why he's making these decisions, and even when he's at his worst, I'm like, that is cold-blooded, Kobo. But that was that's an impressive move. <laughs> like, wow. And he's a monkey, yeah, they... Chris. He's a fucking monkey, <laughs> and I, I will compare him to like Hannibal Lecter or like, uh, you know, No Country for Old Men, like like any any kind of like epic cinematic villain you can think of. I think Kobo deserves to be on that list. I think he's awesome. Yeah, that is very fair. It, um, it's yeah, like what, the way you're talking about it. It does transcend the fact that you're watching a silly movie where monkeys. Have are smart yeah. and uh, and uh, yeah taken over, but Cobra is like with all the best villains, you're like I, you can either like agree with them to some degree, or or at least be sympathetic to their their reasons. And you can with him; it makes perfect sense. Yeah, and he's he's it is like all the shades of grey. He's mirrored on the human side. There's people who have lost their families and you know, suffered through this apocalypse, uh, like Gary Oldman, you know, yeah. and, and then they, they, they get pushed into these extreme situations and then they snap and they go overboard. 
and that's yeah that's the villain where you can be like okay now he's now he's really bad he's gone beyond now it's time to put a stop to his schemes well again and i until you see gary oldman show up and you think well here comes our mustache twirling villain and he's not exactly good but he's not exactly bad and in the middle of all this chaos he has a great scene where they he's got to power up this ipad or whatever it is and he gets broadsided by an image of his family. Like, that's not why he turned the thing on, but there they were in front of him. And it just, he wasn't prepared for it. And it's a really well-acted, like, beat of, of character. And again, this crazy sci-fi monkey movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, like, uh, he, they, they've all got depth. And with his... Uh, you know, you see his family, you understand his point of view, and and it's just so layered uh, in a way. He's oh, the, uh, and also both of the villains, well, Gary Oldman's sort of the human villain and Cobra's the monkey villain, they, or antagonist, they also are both, they start off reasonable enough there, they will, um, Cobra, Cobra is willing to, to allow a little bit uh, of the human interaction as long as you know, there's he's a game spying on them he's checking what they're doing and then and then he sees what sort of the bad elements of the humans are doing which pushes him to his point of view and then gary oldman like oh go see if we can deal with the monkeys and get the the dam running and then and then yeah and then everything kind of goes COVID sideways action, that causes him and and we've got meanwhile we've got caesar and uh jason clark's character malcolm who uh have pushing their own positive agenda and but it's being counteracted by their underlings. It's just so well done. It's so layered. It's, it's way better than it should be. You're not like expecting you said, it. This, You're not yeah. expecting it to be as layered and complex as it is. And let's. So, and you're saying, is it necessary? And like you know, before you see it, you would have said, "Well, no." <laughs> We've seen remakes of this <laughs> series before. And it's ridiculous. But uh, apparently, you can just bring this level of depth and complexity and intelligence to a stupid monkey movie made in the 60s by a bunch of coked out hippies or (laughs) (laughs) really elevate it and there's good decisions made here i like that the monkeys talk but they're not having full-on conversations all the time it's like language isn't something they've mastered at least not all of them yet Caesar is obviously the most communicative, but some of them can talk and some of them can't. And I do think that we would further strip away to this uncanny valley if, like, the, you know, they were making pop culture references or quipping, you know, like, sooner or later it'll turn into a chimpanzee smoking a cigar and then we have a problem. (laughs) Then all of a sudden it becomes, like, too silly to take seriously. But no, there's scenes yeah, where smart with it. Yeah, there's scenes with real emotional impact. I love the scene where Koba goes up to those guards and at first approaches them acting all weird and benign and then starts making this sort of goofy circus act dance and completely makes them drop their defenses and then icily fucking kills them like just super cold and like all of those emotional beats played out through that scene are amazing. The moment of betrayal with the, the we haven't talked about Andy Circus because I do think he's really fucking good in the movie. 
the moment of betrayal in Andy Serkis where he takes these rounds in him and he looks at Koba and he's like, you really just did that. And Koba looks at him and he says, that's right, motherfucker, I just did. But neither of them said it. We just looked at their faces and that's what, what transpires. Like, I'm... I'm yeah, in their computer monkey faces. Exactly. <laughs> that is more impressive to me than any kind of meteor hit or tidal wave or massive explosion that special effect that anyone can do. I reacted emotionally to your special effects. It makes me worry almost a little bit for the future of actors once they can find ways to, <laughs> you know, get an AI system to look at enough actors, do enough performances, and pull enough faces, then... What are we doing anymore? Yeah, I mean, that paradigm will shift. I mean, at the moment, they're using that technology to keep these old actors that we liked from the past, making them young again. Yeah. But eventually, people are going to be, uh, they're going to die off, and then what have we got left? It'll have to all be computer people. Right. Or <laughs> people who are all upset that they want uh, Clint e young Clint Eastwood to be the gunslinger in the Stephen King story. Well, maybe we can do that for you now. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's it, like... Uh, it, the the, the the door that got kicked open with some of these special effects, I mean, wow. But the biggest compliment I'll give Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is that in spite of the amazing jaw-dropping special effects, that is not even the most impressive thing about the movie. So I guess I'm saying I'm a There's, fan. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you there. And there was a couple of scenes that I liked. I liked the reflection scene, um, well reflecting on the original Planet of the Apes, when <clears throat> the apes come up to the humans, Gary Oldman doesn't believe they can talk, and then Caesar talks to uh, the humans for the first time. You know, he says, uh, human home, ape home. And all the humans are like, <gasps> you know, that's, Holy that's shit. the, he can talk scene from <laughs> Planet of the Apes. And that, I thought that was, that was great, really. A good reversal, yeah. Yeah, good reversal. And then, uh, and the moment when they do get the power back, and... They're playing, they're playing the song at the gas station and everyone like stops and you can see the the lights back on in the city and it's like, oh, maybe we can do it. But then, but you know, because nope. it's undercut as well because, you know, Cobra's already planning his, his uh, shenanigans. And so, if yeah. they're staying canonical to the original series, this is leading to a planet of the apes. The humans are not That's going right. to win. It, like, even if this little batch managed to get their power turned on in this area of the world, long term, humanity is going to fall. <laughs> um, there's also another great scene, again, just, just well, <laughs> just the emotional beats of it are played when the worm turns, Koba has arranged to make it look like the humans have betrayed the apes. And there's a bunch of humans hanging with the apes when the news arrives. And the apes look at the humans and basically just say, run. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, I love how ramped up the stakes are in the movie. And I love how I keep thinking that I know where it's going and I don't. Um, if you like, some people liked Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Some people thought it was a little bit too meandering. However you felt about Rise of the Planet of the Apes, I encourage you to press on with the series. Yeah, uh, it hits a home run with this one, that's for sure. In 1954, we awakened something. Well, there's nuclear tests in the Pacific. Not tests. They were trying to kill it. 
idea what's coming. Can you kill him? The arrogance of man is thinking nature is in our control. So, Chris, do you have a, a position on Godzilla as an entity in entertainment? Do you like him? Do you hate him? Were you a fan? Do you have a card to play here? No, not especially. Um, I never... Well, it, this wasn't something that was widely talked about or available, I suppose, these Japanese movies. Everyone sort of knew Godzilla, but I don't think I ever saw growing up in uh, ever seeing it in, in a blockbuster, a Godzilla film, and... It was never interesting enough for me to watch it. So I think my first, and sorry to say for any fans of Godzilla, the first Godzilla movie I ever saw was the Roland Emmerich one, yeah. the American one. It's a great crime against humanity, that movie. Yeah. It is It is a debacle, if ever there was. <laughs> it is. And this one isn't, uh, isn't nowhere near that level, but uh, it does have some pretty significant problems, I think. I'm really genuinely torn on it. I genuinely... I haven't been as excited about Godzilla historically because when I was a kid, the Godzilla movies weren't what I wanted them to be. They just didn't They didn't impress me the way that they would have if I'd seen them if I was a kid of the 60s. As a kid of the 80s, the special effects just didn't hold up for me. I just I didn't buy into it as much. I was raised on Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and Ghostbusters and Gremlins, and these effects just didn't... And then, like you say, the Emric one of the '90s was just a just atrocious. Like, if you if you want to have a laugh, you can listen to my review of Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. I have a proper tantrum over it. <laughs> um, so no, I didn't have any personal investment going in, other than it's a giant monster movie. They're trying to make a franchise out of it, and I vaguely want it to be good. The interesting thing is Gareth Edwards, is it? Uh, the director. Um, he would go on to do the best Disney Star Wars movie that we've seen so far, anyway, in my mind, uh, Rogue, Rogue One. I don't want to pick a fight with yes. you. I know you're a Star Wars fan. That's just how I feel. <laughs> but... Rogue One is Rogue One is the only good Disney Star Wars film. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll, we'll we're, we're going to save that a good discussion for another day. But we can both agree that we really like. Talk Rogue... a lot about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> we will spend just one episode just talking about Rogue One, <laughs> but. Um, I I walk away thinking that this guy is a great director. I think he's visually very stunning, but I don't think he's the right guy for a Godzilla movie. His instinct is to tease, is to like not show you his hand, is to like give you a glimpse and a shadow and a perspective of Godzilla's. There's his foot. There's his shadow. There's his silhouette under the water. There he is breaking through the cloud line, but you're always just barely seeing them. 
this accomplishes good things and it makes Godzilla feel real somehow in a way that he hasn't for me in the past. But it's fundamentally not, I think, what people go to see when they see a Godzilla movie. When they go to see a Godzilla movie, they want to see big monsters fight. They want to see a huge creature fight and the movie eventually gets us there. But even when it eventually gets us there, it's at night, it's raining. Uh, I, I started watching this projected and it was so hard to follow that I actually switched back to the TV so I could get a better like uh, scale of the destruction. And like in another movie, in another franchise, this approach would have 100% worked. For a Godzilla movie, it's just it's it seems like a bad choice. A just because of the size of the creature. It's like in Meg, the the shark movie, where they're trying to do pop scares with us with this huge dinosaur shark, right? Godzilla doesn't sneak up on anyone. That shit just doesn't happen. The ground shakes with his every movement, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it seems to not understand that Godzilla's the the star of the show in that respect. But it does seem to understand that Godzilla is the star of the show in that I'm not as attached to the human characters. They're trying to make me feel emotionally invested, but the movie keeps on teaching me, okay, here's a character, care about him, now we kill them. Here's another character, care about them, now we kill them. Here's another character, and now, an hour into the movie, here's your protagonist. No. The protagonist should have been Godzilla, perhaps, Maybe maybe that was just a mistake from the get-go, but I see a lot of smart ideas. I feel like, like they're trying to tackle Godzilla in a different way, and that in another movie it would work. In this movie, it only just barely works. I'm not going to give it a thumbs-down review. I think there's just too much good in it for me to say it's a wall-to-wall -wall catastrophe, but it only just gets there, and that's kind of disappointing. All right, um... Yeah, that's a good assessment. It's uh, there's I see the 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 slow build up to Godzilla. I think uh, would have worked really well if the human elements were connecting properly. And I think the biggest misstep you have is uh, killing off Brian Cranston's character because he has uh, the motivation and he has the ability to do that that uh, turn at the end, like the Koba or whatever character from Planet of the Apes, in, he's, he's personally been affected. He lost his wife and his livelihood and he's gone crazy because of what's happened. So you can have him being justified and then what, why not keep him through the whole film at the end when they're like, oh, no, wait, Godzilla's our chance to, to uh, save save us from the mutos yeah he uh then he's like no no we must destroy him but but yeah he's killed off early on so you don't get that chance to really have him and or have him be redeemed by his son yeah you know and then the, this is something the, uh, that they carry through in the sequel too. They they really don't seem to care a lot about the human characters. On on that level, they understand that people are there to see the monsters. But like, uh, yeah, yeah, but we're not seeing the monsters in this one, and so we we left, and then we're left with the some character who's got no personality at all. He's I can't remember his name. He's he's he, he's boring. He does nothing. He just 
he like just goes along. Oh, I have to say my family who's his, kind of over there. And his I boring guess, name um, is Ford Brody. The actor is Aaron Taylor Johnson, um, and his wife in this one is Elizabeth Olsen. They would reunite for Age of Ultron, playing brother and sister in Age of Ultron. uh, Oh, yeah. Which I I just recently reviewed. I think this is maybe a better movie than Age of Ultron, but I have an unpopular opinion of that particular movie. Um, But you're right in that, like I said, the movie asks us to invest in Bryan Cranston. And because he's such a powerful actor, we do. He can sell anything to anyone. So if you're going to put someone in a Godzilla movie, this is a good guy to have around. And I think they jettisoned him purely for shock value. And it maybe paid off short term for that scene. And the holy shit, are they really doing this? Oh, guess they are. But it hurts the rest of the movie too much to justify its existence, you know? Yeah, it does. Because then, okay, so if you get rid of him at the start, and then you have, okay, now here's the movie, Big Monsters, rah! But no, it's not. It still meanders between both, both sides of it instead of, you know, really throwing its lot in either way, which I would be fine with, you know, if you had seen the entire film... Godzilla's from the human perspective on the ground at this monster, which is not something that the Japanese ones ever did. You know, they always focused on the unstoppable beast aspect. But so having that as a counterpoint would have been fine. But they never, they never commit to either side, and and that hurts the film. And there's you see so much more of the the Muto monsters than you ever see of Godzilla. Godzilla. Yeah, and, and and it just seems silly. You know, especially the humans' efforts to deal with these when they are just so indestructible. You know, everything you're throwing at them, and this is, uh, you know, we shouldn't bother talking about the science of these movies. No, but no. The fact that these monsters eventually can punch each other to death, but uh, human weapons are so ineffective. You know, an M1 Abrams tank can <laughs> shoot through 75 centimeters of armor steel. Right. Right. But. <laughs> It can't even scratch these monsters somehow, and that's not even the biggest weapon we use. It's at but best a mosquito punch, bite to them. Yeah, is where it works when a big monster punches it. That's okay. Well, it's <laughs> okay, but that's... it's fitting that we review it like following the review of a, of a Planet of the Apes movie, and that like much in the same way. They're fundamentally ridiculous things, but in order for them to work, you need to hire a cast that's going to sell you it in as credible a way as possible. And in another, like, I've been saying mainly shitty things about the movie, so let me say some nice things. The casting, for the most part, is like, it's good. I think that you're right, that that Aaron Taylor Johnson is kind of bland sauce, but I like Ken Watanabe. I like Bryan Cranston. I like David Strathairn. I love Sally Hawkins. I like Juliette, Juliette Binoche. She's barely in the movie, but like, they give us really credible actors giving us credible performances in this completely incredible movie. And that does ground it. And I have to give props to the airdrop sequence. When those guys drop down on top of Godzilla in the city and like they break through the, the clouds and just the whole way that it's shot, it's such a crazy, fantastic scene, but it's shot with such wonderful reality that like it's very immersive and fun that that isolated sequence if the whole movie had managed that then i might we might be having a different conversation it's one of those 
it's a weird movie in that like I have a lot of positive things to say, but at the end of the day, it only just barely gets a positive review. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a big yeah, believer it's... in the cast, a big believer in the director, and I, you know, I wouldn't give up on Godzilla as a franchise. But the, you know, hopefully, this is the rise of the Planet of the Apes of this franchise that they go to better places from here. That's right. Well, see, uh, I also want to think of uh, this is um, Skull Island was a movie which mm-hmm. i thought was amazing amazing <laughs> and and that that was the one that was like all right we're just going to do the monsters we're going to have a human touchstone here but you know you're here to see the big monsters fighting and it's going to be a spectacle and that really got it right as far as i'm concerned no it, it, i think a lesson was learned with this one and that lesson was don't overthink it <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> is is that good yeah, enough I mean, is there more you want to say about godzilla or yeah it's it's. I just wish that it's just it's it's so close to being good. It could have they could have done it. Everything is everything. All the little elements work. It just doesn't work together. Yeah. Because yeah, like you said, the human you got the humans uh, kill them off, but, and then so you can't. Uh, it's just it's frustrating. It's yeah. a frustrating movie. In a and way, like well, the effects are great and everything, and it's really convincing. The Halo drop is amazing, and and uh, all the. You know, and like, and when you do have the little glimpses, like the little, there's all these subtle things happening in the distance that really like sell it as being a real thing. It's just, yeah, it just doesn't work as a whole. It's not cohesive enough. I've talked about it on the show before. It's almost worse than it being an outright bad movie in which you could sort of let go at some point because it's so close to being a good movie. You're feeling teased yeah. by it a little bit. You're like, oh, God, we're so close, you guys. We're so close. <laughs> Just close the deal for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if they keep making them, I'll, I'll keep watching them because I'm, I'm still, I still enjoy it enough. You know, and if it gets better and better, then, then bring it on. Well, and, Kong versus Godzilla next summer. Sign me up. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> This is our time, this is our chance to make a difference. Now let's get it done! That's what I'm talking about! In my book, it's up only get it all till I die. In my book, it's up only get it all till I die. They've evolved. And they could wipe out all life. Y'all remember me? Y'all remember me? In my book, it's up only get it all till I die. I think I could get used to this. There's something you need to see. So this is the movie that was like a surprise player who stepped in at the last minute to, to save the day. Um... I, I had a few spare movies that didn't have homes yet on lists, so when we lost Crawl Space, I gave you some options, and we settled upon Pacific Rim. And true confession, I've actually owned like this steel box edition of Pacific Rim Uprising for a few months. I got a really good deal on it, but I I actually hadn't got around to watching it. Oh, there you go. So we're gonna base this review on uh, on my first watch of it, which was last night, projected big on the wall, trying to get as close to what a the- theatrical experience might be. I like the rest of the world did not see this movie in theaters. <laughs> well, that's well, not I'm fair. Saying, actually, 
That's not fair, actually. I think it did okay, like, globally. It just didn't do particularly well in the United States. Um, but it's one of these big, gargantuan blockbusters that's designed by, from its very makeup, to appeal to as broad an audience, as global an audience as possible. And that's what's kind of good and kind of bad about it. Again, this movie's going to carry some baggage. I don't know how you feel about the original Pacific Rim. It is not the finest hour for Guillermo del Toro, as far as I'm concerned. I did not connect emotionally to the characters in the first Pacific Rim movie. Uh, to me, what worked was the spectacle. The very basic idea of giant robots fighting giant monsters. That appeals to the little kid inside me. And yeah, um, sign me up for a big old monster fight. But Guillermo, I maybe hold to a higher bar than what Pacific Rim delivered to me. So maybe I was harder on it than I should have been. This movie... Uh, can... Sorry? Not going. This movie came with all the baggage of it that I heard it was kind of disappointing performance here. A lot of people didn't like it as much, even people who were fans of the first movie. So a, a, a bit of a reversal happened, whereas I came in here expecting to not like it. I maybe like it more than it's worth, whereas I might like the first Pacific Rim less than it's worth. But I'm not going to oversell Pacific Rim Uprising. This is definitely suffers from sequelitis. And it definitely is an is-what-it-is movie. And it, for every step it does right, there's another one that almost counterbalances that it does wrong. Very much like the Godzilla movie, which we just talked about. I think that I'm going to give it a just barely a pass on the stage of the spectacle and the charm of Boyega, the, the actor and the character. But again, much like with Godzilla, only just fucking barely <laughs> yeah so uh, lukewarm at best to say to open the gates on on pacific rim uprising but um what did you think uh yeah well the first one is a good one to contrast with God, the most recent godzilla because it is um uh, guillermo would just wanted to do the do the he was mostly interested in the robots fighting the the kaiju right and that really comes through in the film because the characters are so bland and <clears throat> that movie would have benefited more from just you know either, either just like just having one character or, or just uh, be real honestly with all of these movies yeah. i said the same thing about the godzilla sequel um cut as much of the interaction between the humans out of the movie as possible and just be honest this is a spectacle this is anime brought to living breathing cinematic life and it's about robots fighting monsters and that's what you paid your money for yeah it's true and well this goes back to like the script thing is you, these movies could still work with human characters that you connect with that makes it you know that's what separates the the human side, the big robot side versus the monster side. And so you should care about the characters and what happens to them when they're fighting the, the monsters. And uh, Uprising is just, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a popcorn movie and it's, it just doesn't, it doesn't quite work. It's okay. It is, <laughs> it's watchable. It's watchable. Yeah. That's the like, like uh, that's the grimmest sentence I can give the movie on the podcast. Whenever I just give up and say it's okay, <laughs> it's fine. It's just like yeah. uh, it doesn't. It's not memorable. Um, <clears throat> basically, 
John Boyega plays the son of the Idris Elba character from the first film, and he's kind of quit the military, he's gone all renegade, he's kind of a petty thief and a party animal. <clears throat> he doesn't want to, you know, have to live up to this destiny. And it starts fairly well enough, like, they, they show us the world in recovery, they introduce this character who wasn't really mentioned that at all that I really remember in the first movie. And no, in the first movie, actually, Mako, their daughter character, is the... The Idris Elba character says, she's all I have, literally. Yeah. And, and then it's like, oh, I actually also had a, a natural born son who I apparently don't care about. Yeah, but he's kind of a dick. I mean, I know he's only four, but we're just not clicking. It's all about Mako for me. Well, Mako's <laughs> another thing because she's the, like one of the main connections to the first movie. Charlie Hunnam found like he had something better to be doing <laughs> than to be participating in this sequel. Uh, and, you know, they brought back the scientists and some of the background players, but usually the stuff they brought back, I think that they they worked against. They brought back Mako just basically as a sacrificial lamb to motivate Boyega to really hate the powers that be and really, you know, have to level up to fight back. And the scientist characters who were a little bit over-the-top comic relief in the first movie, one of them basically becomes an out-and-out villain in this. And the other guy is just, even in a cartoon movie, just comes off a little more cartoony than I think he should. But, again, that, these are the things that they brought back from the original that we're supposed to be smiling at and liking. And they're, they're sort of bringing them back only to deprive them of us, you know? So, I don't know... Uh, I like some of the stuff they added, but I kind of resented some of the stuff they took away. And uh, I can't believe I've got this far into the review to before I got to the, the big beef. Of of the the two things that we're seeing fighting here, the giant robots and the giant monsters, guess which one I find more interesting? Monsters? <laughs> the giant monsters, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and guess what we don't see a whole fucking lot of in Pacific Rim Uprising? Yeah. They don't show up until the third act when they're basically needed, when our character, you know, has leveled up to the point where he needs to be heroic now. Oh, here they come just in the nick of time, just when they need you. Yeah. And we could talk about the other B story with the, you know, convoluted corruption going on in the government and, and Clint Eastwood's yeah. son as a rival, both romantically and professionally, but we don't care about any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all. That's all. It's all very surface level. It's sort of hinted at and then uh, discarded. So one thing that I kind of did respect about it in terms of a sequel is that they didn't uh, just revert anything that happened. The the um, the ten year gap the, in between. I do have been gone for ten years, right? And they had. They didn't just say, "Oh, yeah." the rifts are opening again and we're fighting the monsters. They like, no, they basically just, they kept the, the status quo established from the first one. And only at the very end, because of the, the Machiavellian machinations, apparently were, did they even bring the Kaiju back? And I kind of, although, you know, this is the, the monsters versus robots movie. I kind of saw, I kind of respected where they were going with that, how they sort of kept it, um, kept what happened in the prequel around but um yeah then the human element is is really at the start of the film 
Boyega's character is established, right? And you have his voiceover. He's, you know, telling us what's happening. But that that character never feel really comes through. That personality. He kind of just gets there, and then he's a bit meh. You know, when he's like meant to rise to the challenge and Mako's killed, it's it's not really an emotional moment. Like it happens, and you see like that. But then the very next scene, it's, it's the tone is off for that lighthearted again. He's got this fun-loving, light-hearted, goofy, everything's going to work out, aw shucks, action hero quality. And that's something that people seem to covet in an action hero in these movies, but it's not appropriate to the world. His dad died saving the world. Now that's a tough fucking act to follow. So there's a reason that he could be acting out and being this way, but we don't really ever get that. We, it's all just, this is an action hero. This is what an action hero sounds like. This is what an action hero looks like. I think Boyega does well with it, and I think in a better realized role, he could really, really shine. But he needs to find like the, a, a vehicle that's not Star Wars and that's not Pacific Rim <laughs> and, and really yeah. knock it out of the park. I believe it'll work for him. I believe I believe him. Like, I like Boyega. Um, I also liked the his sort of sidekick character who built the little scrapper machine. Um, mm. I can't remember her name right now. Uh, Amara Nemani, maybe Kaylee Spain, Spainy. Let's say, let's, let's say that's right. Um, yep, I think that's right. It's a very, uh, sort of cliche, you know, she's young and spunky and knows way too much about science and way too much about fighting for somebody her age. But again, <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of these action movie things, you know, we are designed to like and care about that character, and we do. And <clears throat> really, that opening sequence with her running amok with her little toy robot at the beginning of the movie kind of put a smile on my face to start, and like made me want to like the movie. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, she that gets was fun. Yeah, she gets sidelined very quickly after that. Unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it opened very strongly. I think for a popcorn movie. Oh, cool! This is a this is the world we inhabit, and these are our characters. Uh, but then it it sort of it blandicizes as it goes, and there's too many characters, and they're all too shallow. Like the love interest character, no. I think she's in two things. I don't even remember her name or anything, and she's yeah, does nothing. She's totally wastes wastes space. Uh, no, no offense to the actress, but just, you know. The, no, as a character. No. I mean, the actress was had yeah. her hands tied, her legs tied, and her mouth gagged. This is like nothing you could do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just... And, you know, you've got the, the mass market. That's the, the Chinese market is obviously what we're going for. All these big movies, because China's a complex subject, but they're only allowed to have a certain amount of movies. You have, So you have to really... And China has requirements for what China's doing in these movies. Right. right? And that's that is what it is. But with these restrictions, just just lean into it. Then I reckon you know, just make if you've got to have a Chinese character be uh, doing something good to make it saleable in China, then lean into it. Throw her in there. Have her interact more with your main characters. Have her, uh, you know, have her and the Mako character, have the Chinese character and the Japanese character. There's a historic conflict. You can, you can, you know, have them interact. I don't think they even speak. I really Just, feel like um, Mako should have been the main character of this movie. Boyega almost should have yeah. been her sidekick or something like this, or her romantic interest or something. Like, Charlie Hunnam wasn't coming back fine. Bring in John Boyega, but why did he have to be Alba's son? 
Um, yeah, but at, that doesn't make sense. At the same time, if we had another romantic subplot, a la the first movie, I would be sitting here saying, you've repeated yourself, and I don't want to see that. I would rather see Boyega bonding with this little kid than, than another lame romance distracting. But yeah. however they're distracting us, be it this relationship with this spunky little kid or this, you know, a lame romance, the whole time the real problem for me is, when are the fucking monsters going to get here? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's too, too, many, too many characters, too shallow characters, and not enough monster action, you know? It's, it's, yeah, it's the same. It's neither here nor there when, it, uh, you know, you have such ridiculous premise. Just lean into it. Devil's Advocate? Make us care. Devil's Advocate, though, the monsters do eventually show up, and when the monster robot fight happens, it is pretty cool. I mean, th there's a few things yeah. that the movie overlooks. I remember a lot of people getting all pissed off about Man of Steel and all of the, like, residual damage that happened when the superheroes <laughs> fought in the city. These these yeah. robots, like, fall backwards into a building to break their fall, and, like... <laughs> Like the the amount of bystanders killed that aren't that isn't registered by the movie or that we're asked to care about is kind of hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so crazy. But I mean, no, they 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 do the, the the classic throwaway line. Everyone's in the shelters now. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Good. I'm sure the entire population of Tokyo has managed to get underground. Yeah, there's no so, stubborn yeah. fuckers who are saying, I'm staying in my apartment, I ain't scared of no monster fight. Yeah. Oh, this, that just reminded me of something that happened in Godzilla, which, which I, well, the first time I saw it, I never noticed, and the second time I was like, what? When Godzilla arrives, or they arrive in the city, this is the second day after these monsters have arrived and started destroying the city. There's people in the offices watching it happen, like... Monsters are heading towards the city is the broadcast and people are like I I'm gonna go I'm gonna stay at work. People need their their, their paper. No You know what? Godzilla's on. coming to my city. I'm taking a half day. I'm gonna <laughs> yeah. it Might be a day that you call in some of your sick leave. But that's when you know the movies aren't working, when you're thinking about shit like that. And I did find myself thinking about shit like that. But as mean as I've been about Pacific Rim, I do think it's, it's again, it's fine. It's okay by sequel standards to a movie that the original I was kind of only so-so on anyway. I mean, uh, it, 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 I came in with low expectations and I guess they were met, but I don't think I'm giving it an entirely thumbs down review. I agree it could have been better. I know a lot of people were pissed off about the Charlie Day character going all weird and, and <laughs> sinister. Uh, he's yeah. from the show like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which everybody says I should watch, but I've never brought myself to watch. But, um, that, I don't know, I don't know. I'm not connected enough to care about the movie, but I'm not disconnected enough to dislike the movie. I'm just kind of, yeah, that's about what I would expect a sequel to Pacific Rim to look like, I guess. Yeah, I mean, well, the Charlie Day character I thought was one of the more clever elements of the, the plot um, because he had that connection in the first one. Okay, it's corrupted his mind, made him go crazy. Apparently, he's able to have somehow organized that literally every single robot has a kaiju brain in it somehow. It's it's so weird. How, how the hell he managed it. And it's like, it's thrown away in one line again. It's like... Oh, you know, 
a little bit of money here and there. Everything's automated. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, and then but then it's still it is so surface that the the Li Wen character she is set up as the antagonist right at the start, right? And then there's the turn where it's actually Charlie Day character. You know, he's he's bad, and she comes back and she's the hard nosed businesswoman who's slaps him into shape becomes human in the end but then yeah but because there's too many characters there's too much going on and you only have little blips of every character throughout the whole film it just doesn't work so just give us the monsters instead yeah i could have done with some more monster but uh, it is what it is if you're in the mood to watch a giant robot movie here it is Perfectly adequate <laughs> popcorn film. <laughs> you can save everyone. We're gonna break into the most heavily guarded place in the universe. Oh yeah. Blomkamp, after making District 9, was kind of a hot property, and um, he followed it up with this movie Elysium. There was a time where everybody was excited about Neil Blomkamp, and, and that has since kind of gone away. Um, there was rumors he was going to do a new Aliens movie, and then that didn't happen, and there's rumors he was going to do a new Robocop movie, and then that didn't happen. And then he did this movie Chappie, which was embarrassingly not good. <laughs> Um, I don't think that Elysium is embarrassingly not good, but it sort of fulfilled to me a suspicion that I had about District 9, which is a movie that I really, really liked, but that I do think was in danger of being a little bit overrated at the time it came out because of how, as cool as it was in execution, a lot of the sci-fi archetypes that they were dealing with were just incredibly cliched and familiar. And I think that the exact same thing could be said about Elysium, but to a significantly worse degree. Whereas I could get distracted by the spectacle and the performances in District 9, I kind of got stuck on some of the ho-hum familiarity that I found hiding within Elysium. The production design is impressive, and there is some great acting in it. I really like Charlotte Copley as a fucking hateable villain in this movie and i think that matt damon does well sort of splitting the difference between playing uh he you know he he, he usually does sort of aw shucks every guy kind of matt damon or super tough born identity matt damon and this character is kind of a nice sort of even split down the middle of those two uh, affects that he's well explored in his career so i don't think he was stretching himself but i don't think he was the wrong guy for the job either but this whole idea of there's a society that lives in the sort of uh, orbiting ringed p- 
perfect lifestyle, the place they call Elysium, that's sort of orbiting around the Earth. And the Earth is this post-apocalyptic garbage heap nightmare which people live in squalor. And if you make it to proper citizenship, you're essentially immortal, spoiled, and live with every luxury. And the bulk of the people are working horrible jobs, eating bugs, and just scratching a, a miserable existence. And we have this inexplicably bad performance from Jodie Foster as this woman who, uh, well, first of all, they, they needed more dimension to her character from the writing standpoint, but just somewhere between the accent and her motivations and intentions, I just... There's something fundamentally missing in that character for me. And you'd think that if anybody could make it work, Jodie Foster, who is an impressive actress to me, usually would. But here she doesn't. I hate to keep on repeating myself in this podcast, but here again I see another big-budget sci-fi movie with great sequences in it that by themselves really work and great performance in it that I really like. But at the end of the day, like... Am I excited about Elysium? Would I recommend somebody else watch Elysium? I think on a given night, there's probably better science fiction movie to watch than Elysium. There's probably an edgier movie to watch than Elysium. There's probably a smarter movie to watch than Elysium. If you're crazy about sci-fi and, you know, <laughs> don't want to be surprised by anything, uh, here's another sci-fi entry. But I guess it's one of those movies that's haunted by the thing that I, I kind of wanted or expected more from it. It's not bad, but it's not great. And it feels like with all of these pieces, it could have or maybe should have been great. Um, am I wrong? Uh, no, you're, you're pretty much right. I, eh, there's so much to like about this film. It's, I think, it, you know, uh, performances, characters, uh, production design, the action sequences, absolute home runs, some astonishing stuff. I think Matt Damon's character is one of his best performances, one of his most interesting characters. It's a, it's a, a fairly decent man with a checkered past, you know, and it all comes through excellently. Um, uh, what's it? Uh, Shalto Copley. The Kruger character is one of the most awesome villains, like straight up bad guys in anything. And <laughs> there's, there's even, there's depth to him, you know, like he's a total villain, but he's 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 like, oh, I don't like to do violence. I shouldn't do the South African accent. <laughs> I don't like to do violence in front of kids. He's got some code at least. Yeah. Right? Well, and, and being a monster. also on top of being a hateable villain, having his head blown off doesn't stop him from continuing to be a hateable villain, which I thought <laughs> like right. that was the biggest pill to swallow in the whole show. But I was happy that he wasn't out of the movie as much as he was a real hateable villain he brought some real energy and stakes to things yeah you're right I mean, isolated moments when they're trying to kidnap william fitchner's character i guess we haven't really talked too much about plot but uh this william fitchner character who ran the business that matt damon worked for who he got radiation poisoning on the job and this is actively killing him he strikes a deal with his criminal underground buddy that if he can get the information in William Fitchner's head and they can get access to the mainframe of Elysium, that maybe they can do something about his illness or maybe, you know, they can make some positive changes. His death might mean something, but that, such are the grim stakes. 
that first action sequence, because we kind of have to sit through about a half an hour of setup and world building, and they try and kidnap this 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 character and the gunfight that ensues and these robots that show up to stop them, that sequence was just incredibly well done that is like a great standalone action sequence and uh we have a few of those in the movie and you know credit where credit is due points that when it works it really works i just wish it was less predictable and familiar than it was like did anything surprise you that took place in the movie no i mean yeah like props and and the the props and the um the world Man, that's the most well-realized, you know, realistic. Not real, you know, real, like a, a, you know, effects-wise, it looks like the real world, and um, you know, like the, the the contrast with the the sci-fi robots and his spaceship, and Matt Damon with his space Kalashnikov. It's so awesome. So yeah, it was a very predictable movie, was what we were agreeing upon in a lot of ways. Yes. Like. It didn't yes, present a lot of things that were new or even particularly impressive within that scope. There's a high-class, high-powered social strata, and there's a low-class, no-powered strata, and they had to resolve each other. The predictability wasn't a problem. Uh, wasn't as big a problem for me. I thought it was just the the social commentary. You know, sci-fi is famously you know used as a vessel for that but this the the there's no subtlety in this at all there's no it's on the nose and it's really very distracting when they're using current terms in a futuristic sci-fi movie like the guys who show up the security robots who show up are called homeland security right they refer to them as uh undocumented or illegal or whatever it is. It's like they're specifically using the modern day term for for people you know, across the border in, in the US and it's just really clunky and it really throws you out of the movie which should work so well because everything you're seeing and hearing and the characters are great. They're so great and they just need just tough pull it back just use some different terms and give us um uh Jodie Foster give her some motivation some reason to be acting the way she's like planning a coup yeah uh, you know and, and that whole thing is is really mysterious like she gets in trouble because she uses Kruger to shoot them down from the earth they shoot missiles back towards Elysium to kill the illegal immigrants and I don't understand they didn't unless I missed it they, they didn't understand why they were so mad at her about that like it's like oh we're not you're not authorized to do that so what is the government's policy on the people well they don't in? want yeah. dirty poor people in Elysium but Jody... I don't know, but is the are the rich people upset at her because she is murdering them yeah. or I think it was okay, her using but, lethal force. Is like catch them yeah, and but, kick them out. You don't have to kill them. They just have to live miserable lives. If we let them live miserable lives, we're not bad. If we kill them, we're bad, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the heavy-handedness there, right? Of the of the commentary, but yeah, that and so that aspect is is so weak compared to the struggles of the the pause on the ground right like you know where they're coming from what they want it's obvious and that's fine but give it, us 
uh, a bit of grey in our villains here. Yeah, it's undimensional. Kruger's the black, right? He's meant to be the black one, the villain, the villain. And then you have the people in Elysium, you have them like, uh, you know, oh, well, we can't help now. We need the resources for ourselves, blah, blah, blah. But it's none of that. It's just like Jodie Foster just wants to overthrow the government for no special reason, just because she got in trouble once. This aspect could have been easily fixed, too, because if we were led to believe that there literally was not amount, enough resources to go around anymore, then then maybe yeah. this system is horrible, but by some means necessary. You and I talked about um, Snowpiercer, which was the same sort of really... I, I had same similar issues. It was just so... You know, introdu- introduction to sci-fi with its sort of uh, themes and, and ideas that, even though it was impressively rendered, I overall had to be end up a little bit mixed on it. Uh, here, I, I feel that exact same way. Like, if they didn't have the resources, if they had to be doing this, then maybe it'd be okay. But it seems like Jodie Foster just is, like, not willing to share. She's just like, yeah. well, it's always been this way, so that's the way it shall stay. These people... Yeah, and uh, it's- how am I supposed to know that I'm better than these people if they live the same lifestyle as me, you know? Yeah, it, that's, that's the way she's acting. And, it, and it, it's a perfect setup as well for, for it to be there's a limited resource problem. Like, Elysium's shown to have magical technology, which is fine, and, and everything they want. But you could easily play that off as, you know, they're living on a space station. What they have is, to some degree, you know, limited, right? They need... But yeah, they need, you know, there's only so much to go around and these magical beds that bring you back to life maybe require some incredibly rare power source or whatever. You can totally have it working with their sh- shades of grey and that is also better for the social commentary because you can't, you know, a first world country can't just go, here's all our money, yeah. you know, to, to another country and, and it wouldn't work in real life as well. But because of the cartoonishly villain... <laughs> villainous unlimited resource uh you know jody foster side is just so clumsy and yeah it just doesn't work no dimension to it sorry it's one of the you first got, times I that jody foster has been killed on screen uh i saw yeah. her interviewed about this and she said for all the movies she's made uh like her character has been a ghost her character has died like off screen but she's never actually died on screen and <laughs> it's too bad because when it happens i mean if I really hated her character enough, I could sort of enjoy it. Or if I was really shocked by it happening, I could be, oh my god, that just happened. But it really just yeah. sort of lay there for me. What works for yeah. Elysium is what worked in District 9, as far as I'm concerned, which was the sort of strange counterbalance of shooting really high-tech special effects under a backdrop of ugliness. Like, the District 9 is largely shot in a slum, but it's got robots and like high-tech fights in it, in, the, in that backdrop. And I guess I just wall-to-wall believed the world on planet Earth more than I believed the world of Elysium in this movie. Yeah. And if I believed them both equally, maybe, again, the balance would fit for me, or I would be more forgiving of a lot of these things, because, again, it's... I'm hard on the movie because I just feel like it should be better. It's got everything working for it, you know? <laughs> Come yeah, on, close the all deal. The elements, all the elements are there. And, you know, like Jodie Foster's killed by her own creation run amok, yep. right? And that should work, but it, it doesn't because she's, you know, sh- sh- shallow. 
oh, and oh, yeah, yeah that, that contrast is so great like that that uh that dropship that kruger has is like one of the coolest sci-fi vehicles all the weapons they use is awesome and it's and you see it flying over these slums and it looks so convincing yeah and then you've got that you know it's got like graffiti on it they've got uh, you know they've got a springbok on the side of their you know because it's south african uh, and and it's it's so cool but it's just it's too it's too it's, the, the overall plot is too simplistic almost but not quite that's where i land yeah yeah same but uh, i still liked it i still like it I still i'd still give it a watch there it is Ferro electronics presents its new model the Mark 13. The Mark 13 is self-repairing, capable of recharging its storage batteries from just about any power grid, including the sun. And when it wakes up, it'll become something entirely new. I gotta see. It's important. Meet me in one hour. A creature that combines the technology of a computer, the deceit of a human, and the killer instinct of a machine. James, listen to me. This is serious. Jealous in trouble. Get ready for an encounter with some seriously heavy metal. hardware so here's one a lot of the movies we've been talking about so far pretty much all of them huge budgets you know large scale big casts spectacle sci-fi then we have this weird odd one out here called hardware came out in 1990 and uh, i remember watching it as a kid and being weirdly fascinated by it but not exactly liking it in 1990 the things that worked for me and like I like the soundtrack. I like that there was some like Iggy Pop did the was the the, the radio DJ and uh, Lemmy from Motorhead did a cameo. Stuff that mattered in 1990. If you gave a shit about heavy metal music, there was there was a lot of appreciation of that within the and around this movie. That doesn't bother me at all. I, I, I feel indifferent to it today. It sort of ages the movie and it kind of makes me smile for that sort of quaint, oh, I remember that time when I gave a shit about things like ministry. The only other thing that was really memorable about the movie to me was that I thought that Stacy Travis was super fucking hot <laughs> in the movie. And that stays true to watching it again today. The music and the soundtrack maybe hasn't aged as well, but Stacy Travis remains incredibly attractive. But I I will also say that as much as I've been hard on a lot of the big budget science fiction movies that we have before, talked about before in this podcast, um, I actually ended up liking it more when I came to revisit it as an adult. I mean, it's far from a perfect movie, but it's a cheap movie. It's a million and a half dollar movie, and it doesn't look like a million and a half dollar movie. I think if it has a problem, really, it's that it moves too slowly. It's directed by Richard Stanley, who's most famous for almost directing the island of Dr. Moreau and then getting fired off of it. Uh, he's recently done an H.P. Lovecraft adaptation starring Nicolas Cage called The Color Out of Space. 
And he has another sort of cult uh, item called the Dust Devil. So he's an interesting director, if not a very prolific one. But I, I have to say, like, he makes a low-budget movie look big-budget. And even though the thrills and the spectacle are not as plentiful as they are in the other ones, when shit goes down in this movie, it, it's kind of impressive, and it kind of counts. So, again, I'm not going to foam at the mouth over hardware, but I'm going to grade it on the curb from which it exists. And for me, this story of a guy, Dylan McDermott, who... Uh, finds some robot parts out in the wasteland desert and brings them back to his girlfriend who's going to use them for a weird art project or welding that she's doing. Um, the, this, this romantic gesture backfires on him when the thing turns out to be the leftovers of a sentient and evil military robot. And it wakes up and it starts killing all the strange people in the building. Um, the world's well realized. It's a sleazy, gross, grimy, sweaty world, much like the, the planet Earth that we saw in Elysium, but credible and complete within its small budget. I think it's a low scale movie. It's definitely, you know, a product of early 1990s. But if what I'm describing to you sounds interesting, I encourage you to check out Hardware. I'm Again, I don't want to oversell it because it, it's just good. It's not great, but it's good enough for me to put thumbs up. Am I wrong? Well, I, uh, I, I don't agree with you with this one. I'm afraid. All right. In, in a way, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it, actually, but I initially did. And, <laughs> uh, you know, at the start, this, I, I, I like, uh, you know, 70s and 80s. Uh, sci-fi like the slow burn sci-fi sort of thing right and I don't the pacing was okay and it starts off really cool really the world is awesome it's really interesting you know the post-apocalyptic wasteland people scavenging you get when they first arrive in their their city um, it's it's cool it's like for a low-budget movie it's a really well realized that there's like a cool a taxi water taxi thing and they like drive around and and your characters you're getting information on the characters it's all building up and then once they get back actually once they introduce the sex pervert character right the neighbor it starts it, it starts really falling apart and by the time it ended i was like oh i'm glad that's over <laughs> so that's not generally a good sign <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I mean, I, it's an ugly world, and like the, every time you think we've sort of hit the grossest thing that they can show us, they seem to like show us something else. This this guy that's spying on her is really disgusting, triple chinned, fat, gross, perverted guy. I mean, they don't do anything to glamorize this guy, but it's interesting yeah. because they have this uh, really awful perspective on this spying pervert, and we're supposed to hate his guts. But at the same time, the movie indulges in a pretty long, pretty graphic sex scene that I think, you know, it's there to titillate us. And I guess it did the job for me when I was, you know, 14. Surprise, surprise. But this time watching it, I was like, yeah, this really does go on. And if, if we're going to judge the neighbor for being creepy and watching and spying on her during the sex scene, are we supposed to be getting off on it on the same time? Because otherwise, this gross British dude is a real boner killer. <laughs> yeah. I um, you know, you might want to not include this part, but uh -oh. I noticed 
this this didn't this didn't help the start of the movie. I noticed the executive producers were the Weinsteins. Yeah. And then uh, once the the sex pervert character came in, this was just in my head the whole time, right? And his character's name is Weinberg. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then like I was like, oh, this is like a creepy sex thing, and. I understand what you're talking about in the produced by the Weinsteins or a Weinstein company thing, but I cannot dismiss, you know, 70% of the movies that came out of the 90s. Like, <laughs> I, I just That's because true. that and motherfucker always... produced the movie does not mean that the movie's bad. I'm not going to boycott Pulp Fiction because I hate Harvey no. Weinstein, right? Like, it's just... No, and I'm, I'm always very good with dissociating that, like, you know whatever mel gibson i think he's amazing i still think he's awesome i don't care i don't care about people's personal lives yeah. as it pertains to their art right i'm just interested in what they produce but that that really just like threw me uh for a bit you know in the middle and then i also found the soundtrack was so it was distracting it was because it was it was like synth rock and then orchestral movie score sort of stuff it was like all over the place in in a way that was so janky, and the editing starts getting uh, towards the end. Well, and... as I said before, uh, Stacy Travis's naked body has aged pristinely. <laughs> uh, the soundtrack has not. Uh, when I was a kid, both of those things really appealed to me. Now I still see the appeal of Stacy Travis. But the 90s soundtrack is what is screaming that this movie is 1990. And un that's unfortunate because it does a really good job of making a believable science fiction world. That like, it, It's Mad Max in its aesthetic, very believably. Like, uh, I, I didn't feel like I had to like blur my eyes or forgive the cheap budget or, you know. <laughs> no, and it, it did start off really strong. And I, I was like, oh, this is a, I'm going to be into this. You know, because uh, I love the post-apocalyptic scavenging wasteland thing. But then once it focuses down on the the slasher in this uh, single room, it just I just like lost interest. You know, just uh, it was too too. I wanted to see more. I want yeah. to see more of this world they created. For me, I, I wasn't necessarily about seeing more. I think that, that it was big in its production values, but small scale in its story because of its budget. But a lot of them, you know, a lot of people would just pour the production into one room and then forget about the rest of it and sort of cheat its way through it. And this one, they just agreed that this is going to be a simple, simple kind of Terminator-esque slasher story. But we're going to try and make the world of it as impressive as we can. And, and they're successful in that. Um, and I like that they did a good idea, a good job of making this thing, you know, uh, a real threat. <laughs> My buddy Lee and I reviewed this terrible movie made a few years before this one called Deadly Friend. And you can make a really devastatingly, like, hilariously awful killer robot movie. <laughs> and hardware is not. It's, I mean, it's easy yeah. to make fun of some of the aesthetic choices of its time. And I do think that... They're, they're slow in it just so that they can show us the wor world and let you get absorbed in it. And because there's only two or three deaths in it, it does kind of count. But I'm forgiving of all of that. It's more things like there's the scene where Stacy Travis dives through that window and falls and they do that shot on her. And cinematically, we're just told that she's dead. Like, she just looks fucking dead. 
And then we have the whole sequence of Dylan McDermott, like, sacrificing himself to kill the robot. And then he's dead, and then, wait, no, but Stacy Travis wasn't dead? That felt like a point where the movie didn't really tell the truth. Like, I felt a little bit lied to. Like, it's not that, yeah. oh, she she was unconscious. Like, the way she was laying there with all the glass sticking out of her and her eyes open and not moving at all, she was dead. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's right. And that, and that did leave a bit of a sour taste, because then that happens. But then the movie, she comes back, and then it continues and ends up with her killing it with a shower. It's all... Yeah, it's... It just... I don't know, it just bugged me, I think. All right. Um, but I, I don't know. There's stuff to like. I like the robot. It was pretty cool for the budget. You know, a Mad Max... I was, well, because at the start, maybe also, because I didn't know anything at all. At the start, I was like, well, this is like Mad Max slash Terminator, right? Right. You could, that's its influences. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and it's yeah, I was just I don't know. It's really for it to be something else, and then when it did, I don't know. It's maybe my fault. My it didn't come out how I wanted. Oh, fair enough. I mean, like uh, I I, ha- I do bring some nostalgic personal baggage to it. It's funny too because I remember being kind of lukewarm when I saw it as a kid, but it always stuck in my head, and I revisited it, and I kind of liked it more than I did at the time, while acknowledging it's it's okay. It's it is it it, it it it's just it's better. I, I keep on using the phrase, and I think so do you. That it's better than it has any business being for, to, in my opinion, the production value and the performances and like that robot, all of the, the individual pieces of it work. And it, it's the time that it was made in, and maybe a little bit of the pacing that's the real problem. But I think, I mean, judging it for what it was trying to do, it's fine. I, I wouldn't give up on this director, and it's an interesting sort of little. Curio from 1990. Um, I again, it's one of these movies that that benefits from you being around when it came out. If you're watching it today for the first time, it's maybe not going to hit you the same way. I have a guilty pleasure, I guess, response to hardware. Yeah, that's fair enough. We all uh, we all like uh, the stuff we grew up watching. <laughs> Nobody's perfect, is what Chris is saying. <laughs> no, no I, I, yeah. Some old movies still hold up, and some, I don't know, this one didn't didn't work for me, that's all. Oh, one more thing I wanted to mention about it. The, the, one of the things that, if, if you're a, a little person, or the, I don't know what the right phrase is, <laughs> midget or a dwarf, or, or you know, a, a person of miniature stature, you're going to get cast in a lot of fantasy and, and science fiction movies. This little tech guy that that he meets to sell some of the junk to. Did you recognize him? No. Uh, another guilty pleasure of mine from a childhood is a movie called Willow, <laughs> and uh, this little bald tech guy that he sells some of the equipment he's dug out of the sand to was this kind of nasty character from that movie, and it was a sort of pleasant surprise to me to see him. I just associate him with that. And it also, you know, just has this chain reaction of how the the Mad Max movie we're going to talk about has this too. One of the villain's sons is this little dwarf character who sits in this tiny little 
chair and spies on things through all this, this spy glasses or whenever you have like a fantasy movie or a post-apocalyptic movie or as the great indie film living in oblivion points out a dream sequence for some reason they always have to hire a little person to play the part and i don't know i don't know if it's something that needs to be retired because if it does, does these people like they're not going to get as much work i guess but it is a cliche am i wrong <laughs> Yeah. But I do like that actor. I did like that performance. Uh, he was, again, playing a salty character. In a, and uh, it's just another little detail that I liked about the movie. I'm, I'm overselling it, but I think you might be underselling it. The truth's probably somewhere in the middle here. It is by my hand! You arise! From the ashes! We are not things. We are not things. Where is she taking them? I want them back. They're my property. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! Wanna get through this? Let's go! Let's talk about the best movie of this group of movies here. Uh, I have to say, I'm really impressed with the director here. Uh, is it George Miller? George Miller. Yeah. He has got a really eclectic filmography. Like, he did Lorenzo's Oil. He did Happy Feet. He did all of the Mad Max movies. Right? He did uh, the best segment in the Twilight Zone, the movie. And when you're working with directors like Joe Dante and Steven Spielberg and John Landis, the fact that George Miller easily made the best of those segments, I think, says something about the level of talent that we're going to be talking about here. And he is not a young man when he, you know, in 2015, I want to say, is, is shooting this epic car chase movie in South Africa. As a kid, another one of my movies that I just watched the shit out of was The Road Warrior. And the last, like, third of that movie is this epic car chase where they've got this decoy fuel truck that they're leading all these bandits away from their source. And it's this crazy over-the-top action sequence that I watched again and again and again. And when I was a kid, there was no better action sequence in any movie than the ending of The Road Warrior. The truly fucking amazing thing about Fury Road is that that action sequence at the end of The Road Warrior is basically the entire fucking movie of Mad Max Fury Road. It starts off at a dead run and it really barely stops. There's a few times <laughs> where a character stops to bandage a wound or get a drink of water and we get little spits of character presentation. But largely, this world is shown to us in great detail, without dialogue. Our two badass protagonists, Charlize Theron and, and Tom Hardy playing Furiosa and Mad Max, 
um, very few lines of dialogue between them, but a full relationship builds between them throughout the arc of the story. Uh, the villains are over-the-top ridiculous cartoons, and the aesthetic of the movie is at times as ridiculous as anything we've talked about today. As ridiculous as talking monkeys, and as ridiculous as giant robots fighting giant monsters, uh, is this flamethrowing guitar dude. <laughs> and like just <laughs> some of the bizarre details of this cult. But... I'm not going to say anything bad about Mad Max Fury Road. I, I, I mean, the, the most critical thing I will say is that it's vaguely exhausting. At two hours, I almost feel worn out by the movie, but that's not in, really a criticism. There's a brief moment about two-thirds of the movie where they get to the place of the mothers, where Charlize Theron had believed there was to be greens and trees, and she realizes that this destination she was chasing no longer exists. And that's the one moment of the movie where it slows down enough where I felt like, oh, the movie actually is going to slow down for a minute. But really, then they just turn the trucks around and the car chase starts up all over again. It's one of the movies that's going to be tough for me to review, Chris, because all I can do is gush over the pure <laughs> macho awesomeness on display. But I love Fury Road, and it is the action movie to measure against any other action movie, period. I mean, not since the original Die Hard, or I guess maybe some people would say the John Wick franchise, has a real game-changing action movie come to shake the fortress. I'm going to actually say not since The Matrix has there been a, a, a action movie that just shook the foundations as much as Fury Road. So... I'm being hyperbolic, but I can't help it. I have mad love for Fury Road. Talk me down if you dare. I I would never even suggest you're wrong at all, because this movie is unbelievably good. I I am also I also grew up watching Mad Max, uh, Mad Max Two, Mad Max Two in Australia, oh, Road Warrior. It's Road Warrior in, here. In, over there, yeah, and. I, I don't think that movie had been topped in terms of action films until <laughs> until Fury Road came out. When I first saw the trailer for this, I thought, oh, no, it's just some crazy Hollywood sequel over the top. Because they really, like, showed in the trailer, like, the uh, the big CG dust storm. Yeah. Which is maybe the only part of the movie which is, like, you know, a little computery. And then, oh, and then but uh, when I saw it, Oh, my mind was, I was reeling with it. I was, wow, I can't believe what I'm seeing on the screen. It's absolutely top, top. It's right up there with the original Star Wars for me in terms of the movies I like. It shouldn't work is the thing. It's so crazy. Immortan Joe with his like gas mask face with the teeth drawn on him and this weird plastic shield on his body looks very much to me like a Masters of the Universe figure that I would have collected when I was a little kid, including armor plate that you would snap onto him. Uh, like <laughs> yeah. little flourishes and details in the in the it's so crazy those weird stilt people walking in the marshlands that we see for a scene and are never really explained. The War Boys, which we get ideas of, they're somehow these irradiated, toxic kids, and uh, they're raised to be warriors. They all have cancer. They all have these weird growths around their throats, and like 
They know they're living a half-life, as they call it, and the best way to spend their half-life is to dedicate it to Mort and Joe. They have this whole great uh, plot device of witnessing before one of them is going to sacrifice themselves. They spray this metallic stuff in their face and yell, Witness! And then they do some awesome, <laughs> spectacular explosion. And it's crazy. It's crazy. It's like juvenile, macho ridiculousness. And I love it. <laughs> I love it. It absolutely <laughs> transcends the the outline. Oh, it's a car chase in the desert. It's like, no, it's so much more than that. Every every single scene, every single character, every time they're on screen, they're building the world or those characters. You know, the the war boys, they do their, they link their finger together like a V eight engine. Yeah. They worship their engines. They've got a shrine with. Um, their steering wheels, you know, even throwaway characters like uh, Slit, which is the the Lancer on um, uh, little <laughs> little boy. What's his name? Nathan Holt's character is the main war boy we follow. Yeah. Sort of his yeah, Nathan Holt, the guy who's on the back of Nathan Holt's thing. He's you see, like he's so conniving and he. You know, he oh, there's like the great scene when when we first see the witness, right? That slit character is waiting till the guy jumps to throw his lance to take away from that guy's achievement. Yeah, and then he's like shouting mediocre in the background. <laughs> mediocre. <right? laughs> and and like even that character, you you just get so much just from the actions at this little snippets of dialogue yeah nicholas holt i I said his name wrong sorry it was nicholas holt that's a really interesting character because he is crazy and he is sort of a villain but he does have a full arc and journey that we kind of follow he's ravenous to you know do good by his (laughs) his leader and there's a fantastic scene where he's given a pistol and told by his master you know you take this girl out i will personally deliver you into valhalla and he's so happy his eyes fill with tears he can't believe he's this lucky and then he instantly fucks it up (laughs) and it's hilarious but i felt for him i was like oh no but what was he doing he was going (laughs) to go stab furiosa or kill furiosa did i want furiosa to die (laughs) no No, it's so well realized, and like it's everything is built up to it. You know, that's it's the, the layers and layers and layers of everything. Because at the start, you know, in Morton Joe, you see the world he creates. You see that the war boys are just rejoicing by the fact that he even looked at them. He looks at him. It's a sign from the gods. My God has favored me this day. Yeah. And then to, for him to like f- fuck it up directly from a direct order from him it destroys him. It it couldn't be a bigger failure. It just couldn't, like, (laughs) no. It's interesting because, like, right out the gate, all we're talking about is just gushing over the action, the momentum, the crazy, like... But I I have to compliment the world building that's going on here. Like I say, uh, Mad Max doesn't have a lot to say. In fact, for the first third of the movie, he's largely just a helpless witness to everything that's going on. We enter this world through his gaze, but we don't have a lot of access to Max other than the fact that he's crazy and he's just dealing with the situation that he's found himself caught up in. And uh, we actually get more access to Charlize Theron. But underneath all of this... I like that because that's 
how the old Mad Max is, where Mad Max is less, you know, his Mad Max, the, the character of Max is the first Mad Max, and then from that we're just seeing the world through his eyes, and he's, you know, he's the he's less less the protagonist than than the witness. He in is, those films as well. He's become the man with no name in a post-apocalyptic sort of world. He's Clint Eastwood who shows up in the town to clean up the place or to help out or to get into this adventure. And in, in, in a lot of ways, the movie belongs more to Furiosa than it does to Max. But it doesn't hurt. It's still a Mad Max movie in spirit and in feeling. And, and uh, I think Tom Hardy is, considering how little dialogue he has, brings a lot to it. I didn't find myself missing Mel. All due respect to your boyfriend, but uh, I, I wasn't yeah. spending the whole movie going, "Oh, where's Mel? Mel would have done it different." I, I really liked what Tom Hardy brought to it. But over top of the great clever, yeah, world... this this movie really made me take notice of Tom Hardy. Before yeah. I hadn't, he was just like some action guy, and then when this came, I was like, "Wow, this Tom Hardy guy is really good." Let's keep an eye on <laughs> this know, dude. I, I took, uh, yeah. <laughs> But on top of the great world building and on top of the amazing action, there's a little bit of a feminist underbelly to the movie as well, which is funny because that's what got all the press when the movie came out. To me, like, it was all about the action things. But really, like, Morton Joe has been keeping these women under sexual servitude. Uh, there's a couple of stratas. There's the women that he keeps impregnating, which he keeps in a vault. And then there's these other milk maidens that he has that are just constantly producing milk for them to drink and... But they've sort of commoditized uh, women. <laughs> and it's interesting because Morton Joe wants not just the ladies back that have been stolen for him, but it's incredibly intensely personal. They're carrying his children. <laughs> and like he wrecks his car to avoid trying to hit one of the girls when they fall off of the truck. And um, there's a lot going on. I... I I was a little bit mixed by the, the Land of Mothers sequence, not just because it slowed things down, it's just because, really, there's 12 or, what, maybe 15 of these women left, and they're all, like, seeming, except for a handful of them, well past their best before date. This just didn't seem like a world that would accommodate anybody in their 60s or 70s <laughs> to me, but, again, I'm looking really hard to find complaints. But did you find yeah, that... That's... Some some people didn't like the idea of making Mad Max all all chicky, but uh, I really liked it. Did you did you land anywhere on that? Like, yeah, no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't really read into that controversy, and it didn't play out to me as being like a, a feminist thing. I, yeah, like, sure, I could you could read it as such, but it didn't like the world that it inhabits was so uh incredible like i was i was i was rooting for the these girls regardless of their gender i was like yeah i would want to escape that situation too i get it and yeah if you're nitpicking anything i did think that like the grandmas in the desert were not that i did i appreciated the slowing down that part but i thought oh this is this is pushing it (laughs) the whole movie's crazy but yeah it's it's weird to say there's a bunch of grandmas it's weird to say that the grandmothers were the step too far when I was complimenting the flamethrowing guitar player. So, again, this is just me looking too hard to find reasons to complain. I do think, I guess, it's oh, one I mean, of it's those... Like you could just gush over every sequence. It's, it's true. Just, oh, the, the, and like the diegetic music for that guitar guy is incredible. Like <laughs> the first, one of the, the early 
I'm out of control. (laughs) Take a breath. (laughs) At the start, when, you know, Furious is first being chased and then the Russian buzzards are attacking her and we're like panning across the desert, this huge shot, and we hear the music in the background. And then like it gets louder as we go over the the war boys and then away from them, the like Doppler. And, oh man, it's just, it's a stunning achievement of cinema. It's like what cinema can be is this film. If it, oh. And Maybe so much of it is practical, deceptively so. They added some digital effects to spew some dust out of the back of the cars and to give the illusion of greater speed. And they've, you know, color treated a lot of the film to make it look different digitally. But real people driving real vehicles, doing real stunts with real explosions. Like you yeah, say... Real cars crashing and getting ground under things and being flipped. It's just... You're right. In the, the dust storm is the least credible because it's not practically shot. It briefly turns a little bit Pixar, but there was no practical way to shoot a dust storm of that size. I'm good, <laughs> right? Like, who no, wants to course. shoot and, that practically? It, you know, let's 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 try and shoot in a tornado full of dirt. <laughs> good with luck. Everything that crescendos up to that, like when I saw it in the trailer, I was like, "Oh, that looks too much," but. The way that entire sequence builds and builds and builds and builds to it, by that time, it's like a peak of excitement that I totally was into it. And, you know, it's it's yeah. spectacular watching them get swept away by the dust storm, like some of the war boys get swept away and, and exploding and the, what a day, what a lovely day. Yeah, and then you realize that, like, this was the first act. When that car yeah, that crashes... <laughs> And that flare goes out in the sand and the, the, the storm blows over the car chase and like everything has to stop due to weather. And you give a second, the first chance you're given to take a breath really in the movie. I'm all of a sudden filled with this giddy energy. It's like, that was amazing. And we're just getting fucking started. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess some people might feel that maybe that peaked at that point, like it peaked a third of the movie and I don't know that it did though quite, but see I, I did no for me it, it still worked for me everything else worked for me that yeah it was just great the oh and more nit the more nitpicking the very vet final crash and like the steering wheel comes right at the, the 3D effect yeah I, yeah I was like okay that was purely for the people who paid the extra two bucks for the 3D experience I let it go yeah I let it go. Man, but that's, you know, 99.9 out of 100, this film. You really have to search to find flaws. <laughs> I do think if you, it's one of these movies that if you don't come in with a base fan understanding of Mad Max, uh, if you come in fighting it at all, you'll probably win. Like if the if the gruff, like toxic, heavy metal <laughs> wasteland aesthetic doesn't drive with you like there are a few people who just don't get it they're wrong but there are a few people who just don't get it don't fight with the movie just say i feel like watching a turn my brain off amazing action movie and you'll find that fury road is a hard thing to beat i'm actually at the point with this movie that like there's talk of doing another mad max movie and i'm like you know what mr miller You've made four really, really good Mad Max movies. You're in your seventies. <laughs> I would You've rather 
<laughs> I would rather you just, you know, quit while you were ahead than made, you know, even if it was like a, like a weaker entry, like I would argue that Beyond Thunderdome is a weaker Mad Max movie. Yeah. There's just no, I can't see them topping Fury Road and, you know, leave them laughing, George, leave them laughing, please. It's a rare thing for me to love a movie so much that I don't want them to make any more. But that's how I feel about Fury Road. Yeah, no, I agree with that assessment. It is it uh, is absolutely peak, a peak of cinema. This film, I, I cannot say enough good about it. So there it was, Chris. That's six sci-fi action pictures reviewed. Now's the part where we get to do the rank. Um, I think you're right. I've just through the discussion, it doesn't sound like we're going to agree, at least not on the bulk of the list. I have the feeling that our top two are pretty safe, but uh, the rest is kind of up for grabs. I have to say, for me, the hardest decision, and this was weird, was three and four. I had a real trouble trying to figure out where to put three and four. Uh, but the top and the bottom of the list kind of announced itself. So I'm curious, what was your least favorite and why? Well, uh, it's hardware, I'm afraid. And it just, uh, didn't connect with me. And I just, I was too distracted by, by the, uh, it's, it's elements to make it cohesive enough for me to really get into it. I just, yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit, uh, bit too gross, bit too badly edited, a bit too janky with the soundtrack, and it just didn't work. Despite, I liked the opening, I liked it a lot. When it first started, I was, I was really bought into it. It just fell apart for me too much. That uh, just didn't, didn't, didn't like it, I'm afraid. Fair enough. Uh, number, number five is um, Dumb Robots. <laughs> <laughs> Pacific Rim Uprising it's yeah the least artistic movie on the list and and as a popcorn spectacle it just failed really to work and there's too much surface characters there's an, there would there's enough there that it could work it just didn't and it's, it was a bit disappointing for me uh, number four I've got Godzilla which, uh, as we discussed, was neither here nor there with the characters or the monster movie, and wasted, you know, wasted Brian Cranston so much that I'm, that it never recovered from yeah. from its from its great opening and great potential, and there's a lot to like about it, but it's you know it just didn't quite work. But please keep making them and and get it right. <laughs> Uh, then third is Elysium, which, um, you know, because of its characters, its effects, its world, uh, everything, everything worked on that level, despite its clunky, um, you know, political uh, uh, commentary there, that I just, I was able to enjoy every little element element of it a lot more, 
and get into it a lot more despite its predictability knowing where it was going <clears throat> uh, so then second is dawn of the planet of the apes which is you know would uh, would win almost any other time and it's excellent like we discussed it's great the characters are amazing uh, it's got good action it's got so much soul it's got so much depth and it transcends its stupid monkey movie uh, you know premise so much that it's uh, it's really outstanding it's really up there in any anything that's come out recently as far as I'm concerned and then number one no surprise is Mad Max Fury Road which is in my top five films of all time wow I love Fury Road too. I didn't think I, I again. This is another one of those episodes where there was Fury Road and then five other movies to talk about for me. Uh, so yeah, we're going to agree on the top. We're not going to agree on the bottom. The thing is, is that it surprises me because I thought the movie that we disagreed on the most was Hardware, but it turns out the movie we disagreed on the most was my last place ranking, Elysium. I I, I get that there's a lot to admire about the movie. But I felt like about 15 minutes into the movie that I knew everything that was going to happen in the movie, and I wasn't wrong about that. I, the acting was good, the isolated action sequences were good, but it really kind of is every science fiction movie I've ever seen before. Like, there is nothing new here except for some special effects. Um, and I just needed a little bit of new, just a little bit of new. You got, again, like I said in the introduction, with this much money and this much talent, I just set a higher bar for Elysium than I received. It seems uncharitable putting it in last place, but I'm putting it in last place. I'm giving hardware fifth place. I think that I, I agree that there is a fundamental sort of sluggishness to the pacing and a little bit of sleaziness that was... To be fair, not uncommon for movies of its time. The early 90s, people sort of cared less about, you know, being politically correct and how things were portrayed. And it's a product of its time. It's a very sort of specific slice of 1990 sci-fi. I connected to it enough in a nostalgic way to give it a guilty pleasure pass. But I will realize that it's probably something for me. And it was probably more valuable to it if you saw it when you were 14, like I did, than when you see it when you're 42. But there it is. It, it, it snuck its way to fifth place. And it's probably lucky to have pulled that off. In fourth place is where I put the dumb, dumb robots fighting the monsters. And, and the monsters took too long to show up. That's my big beef, is that the monsters took too long to show up. It, it does deliver superficially the energy and the spectacle that you want from this sort of science fiction popcorn-eating movie, but it's in a crowd of much better movies. And um, again, I'm lukewarm on the franchise, so it was going to be hard for me to get excited about it. I actually think I do like Cup Rising more than a lot of people do. Like, I give it kind of a shrugging pass, whereas a lot of people were like, I hated that movie. Uh, I think people were too nice to Pacific Rim 1 and not nice enough to Pacific Rim 2, but neither of them were amazing, if I was to be honest. <laughs> so, there it was. Godzilla was in third place, but it's really close to me in quality to Pacific Rim in a lot of ways. I just think that if uh, between the two filmmakers, I would put my money on, on, on 
the Godzilla director before I would the Pacific Rim director going forward. I also know that the same director, of course, brought us Rogue One. And I do think really cool ideas, really cool approaches to action scenes if it wasn't a Godzilla movie. It's kind of this strange thing where it's a really good action movie if it wasn't starring Godzilla. You just, you're the wrong guy for the job here. I can tell you're a good filmmaker, but this was not the project that was going to get you discovered the way you should have been. So, Dawn of the Planet of the, Ura- of the, Planet of the Apes is number two, but I got to say, I mean, it kind of almost should be number one in a lot of ways. It's smarter than Fury Road. In a way, the special effects, as amazing as the special effects are in Fury Road, are more effect, uh, impressive to me because they hit me more emotionally. They hit me in the, oh, I feel things for this character way more than a, that was an amazing explosion way. Like, it's just true. It's more complicated. The characters are richer. The villain is way better. But I have to put number one at Fury Road just for the visceral, like, action of it just the pure action filmmaking it's just unmatched it's one of those things where it it overcomes the ridiculousness of its premise i hate to pay a compliment to michael bay but the rock is another movie that i think does this it's so wall-to-wall ridiculous that it's hard to defend but it's so spectacularly executed that it's just impossible not to love it on some level so uh this is just appealing to the little kid in me like mad max fury road number one but do not turn your back on dawn of the planet of the apes i mean that was i was i enjoyed rise but dawn put this franchise to a whole next level for me so it it's number two but it's on most lists, I think it would be number one. There's just something magical about Fury Road. There's something you, you can't deny. It's just like, damn, somebody just made a kick-ass action movie, and thank you. It's, I know, it's so good. You, you can't help but be like a 15-year-old when you're talking about it. You're like, whoa, remember that part when <laughs> the guys were on the sticks and then the car flipped? It's just... Dude took an arrow right through his face, but he still stuck it out long enough to say, Witness! <laughs> That's amazingly crazy and awesome and stupid and amazing and awesome and lovely. And yeah, it's everything at once. It's all you want. And it's pure cinema. Quentin Tarantino once said that, he, as far as he's concerned, if you can do action well, you're a good director. I think George Miller does action better than anybody working. Period. Yeah. Yeah, well, besides Elysium, we agreed. Pretty that much. Damn movie. Yeah. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. <clears throat> uh, stay healthy, I say as I cough. COVID, COVID. <laughs> oh, goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> it was nice talking to you the last time. <laughs> I should have been wearing my mask. I don't know. Can, can, can you catch it through Skype? I don't know how that works. Yeah, I, I don't know. Is it a 5G signal? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to let you go, brother. Thank you so much. Uh, I did send you another suggestion. If you feel like doing another rank and review, uh, I always love having you on this show. Uh, happy to happy to uh, be here, Larry, and I'm definitely going to be back again. Thanks. Sweet. Good to, always fun to talk to you, buddy. Later, dude.
So endeth the lesson on Rank and Review 171 Sci-Fi Action. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca. I, as always, am your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons, and I really do appreciate your listening. Please spread this word about the podcast to that other movie freak in your life. A positive review on iTunes or whatever service you're using to listen to this podcast. Super helpful, super appreciated. Please keep listening. Every other Wednesday, Rankin Review. 